This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Will some of the oil being taken out of the nation's strategic reserve eventually find its way into your gas tank? And will it lower prices at the pump? The answer to both might be no, but we'll go in-depth on President Biden's move to help ease record high gas prices. Smash and grab thieves masquerading as looters have hit again, this time at the Grove. But what is driving the increasing trend of these big chaotic robberies at high-end stores. And why are so Americans saying they are unlikely to ever have kids? With Black Friday rapidly approaching, the most important question might be, will the stores actually have the stuff you want, or will supply chain headaches get in the way? So what if instead you just bought absolutely nothing? We'll talk with the Buy Nothing Project, which is just like it sounds. And then one day we're likely going to have to deal with an asteroid headed our way, headed for Earth. And tonight there's going to be a launch from Southern California to see if we could push one of those guys a little off course, you know, over to the left or the right, <laughs> and then we'll be okay. Yeah, a little bit over that way. Yeah, a little just, bit of- but buy nothing? Over there. Yeah, so, buy nothing. Nothing at all? No, just just get someone to give you stuff, and then you give them stuff. No, but I like having to buy nothing. Yeah. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to do that. <laughs> Doesn't apply to You have to, to have something to help. It's a community thing. Is it? Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, other people... <laughs> no one's just going to come and give you all the things you want. Yeah, no, no. Other people are free to give me, but <laughs> I want to do the buy nothing Willing participant here. Yes. But we start uh, with oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Jonathan Elkind is a senior research scholar at Columbia University Center in Global Energy Policy and served as Assistant Secretary for International Affairs at the U.S. Department of Energy. That was in the Obama administration. Thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. So uh, listening to the uh, the president, uh, he said that we're not going to see any great things happening in terms of lower gas prices overnight. But soon, he says, we will. Will we? Look, already you've seen a softening of uh, oil prices globally in anticipation of the action that was announced today. So that's the funny thing about using strategic petroleum reserves. There are physical barrels uh, that will be released into the market, uh, but the market impact is already taking place, has already been taking place since about the 26th of October when prices peaked as discussion of a stock release uh, began to emerge into public. Will it be as big as people hope it is, or does it still to his point and to everybody's point, it's going to take time. If there are physical barrels, and there are, it doesn't mean they're coming tomorrow. So who's to say that if it's, you know, late December, that the changes wouldn't have already taken place and then we've got these extras anyways? Look, you have to understand the global uh, market interactions are kind of a process. Um, we've been seeing the recovery of um, economic activity in the United States coming off the brutal year that 2020 was with the pandemic. Um, as economic recovery happens, demand for oil increases. Uh, The producers have not been keeping pace with uh, the needed levels of production. Today's action will help, but it's a short-term effect. So there will then continue to be an interaction, a dialogue with producers around the globe. Of course, the president also, he, I was going to say hinted, he more than hinted, he, he pretty much said that there is a uh, division between the wholesale level and the retail level, right? That, that we're not seeing the uh, slow decline in, in prices reflected at the pumps. And to that, there's the suspicion, he said, of perhaps uh, uh, some maybe illegal activity in the part of oil producers and companies. Uh, how much of that is factored into what we're seeing at the pump? 
I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, that's uh, whenever you see a time of elevated consumer prices, uh, there tends to be a lot of attention given to whether there are manipulative behaviors that are going on. So I don't think we should be surprised by the question being asked, but I don't know the answer to whether uh, there is any such. That's for uh, uh, people in the regulatory and enforcement uh, businesses to look after. For the camp that says, you know, releasing these, even though it's a huge number, um, is not actually going to do anything. Does it change if the other folks get on board too? China, India, Japan, Korea, the UK, like, like it's been talked about. If everybody releases some, does that move the needle in a substantial way? Look, oil producers everywhere around the globe need consumers. And so in a case like today, where you have many of the most significant oil consumers, as you said, China, India, Japan, Korea, UK, indicating at one moment that they see a problem in markets, uh, producers ought to pay attention to that. So um, yeah, there's a significance. That's not a typical collection of different countries uh, on this kind of action, um, it ought to say something to producers that there are concerns in their uh, in the consumers that are relying on them. Jonathan Elkind, senior research scholar at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. I'm still really kind of you still mulling want over free the, stuff? the I, I like this buy nothing buy thing nothing. that we're going to talk yeah. about. Uh, talking about uh, people who buy nothing, looters. Or well-coordinated burglary crews. Which one? And what's behind an increasing crime trend of big smash and grab robberies? You're listening to KNX in depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, uh, Armageddon, the movie. Right, they go to blow up the asteroid yeah. and save all of our lives. Um, this is the real life version, though. Don't worry, we're fine. There's not one headed our way, as far as we know. But there's going to be an experimental mission to see if we could push one of those guys off course and then eventually save ourselves and someday. Is, is NASA giving out popcorn? Well, I hope so. Yeah, because <laughs> we can all watch the space launch together. <laughs> right, right now, though, several burglars descended on the Nordstrom's at the Grove shopping mall in West L.A. last night, carrying out yet another high-profile smash-and-grab robbery. This comes after nine stores up in the Bay Area city uh, cities were hit and two other attempted robberies in Beverly Hills over the weekend. So are these well-organized burglary crews or just opportunists? Blake Chow is deputy chief of the LAPD and commanding officer of the West Bureau. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, glad to be here. So why is this happening now? Th this seems to be a fairly new thing, is it? You know, yeah, actually it is. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of news coverage, you know, nationally. You mentioned the incident in San Francisco. We had an incident in Beverly Hills. And last night was the first incident that in West Bureau that we've had. So, you know, I believe, uh, you know, there's been so much coverage on it. Some individuals are finding that they... Um, are kind of learning from these things and coming down here and going after this high-end merchandise. Right. Obviously, robbers watch TV like the rest of us, so they see that it works. Um, that's one way. But but how organized do you think some of this is or could be? It's hard to tell right now. Um, the um, we made three arrests last night, so it's hard to tell if that's if it's actually an organized network. I believe right now, just on preliminarily, that what we have are a lot of opportunists that are seeing that. You know, it's an easy way to get a lot of merchandise very quickly. 
Um, but we are doing some things with our partners in the security industry, as well as our uh, LAPD deployment that's going to put a deterrent to, the, to that type of crime before it you know, gets completely out of hand. Are there any things you can discuss? Well, I can talk about last night's incident, if you like. Um, you know, we actually, um, at about 1040 hours, we got a radio call that 18 to 20 people were observed breaking into the Nordstrom's at the Grove. And we had our units responding. There were three vehicles that they saw that ran a red light around 3rd and Fairfax. So the officers went in pursuit of one of them. Obviously, they couldn't uh, you know, go in pursuit of three. So that pursuit lasted all the way down to the 110. And um, we ended up, uh, uh, they ended up, they ended up uh, stopping and then um, you know, running out of bait, what we call bailing out of the car at the 600 block of West 97th. So we set up a large perimeter. We had our canning unit come out and we ended up, uh, we ended up arresting three people in the perimeter and we found um, you know, evidence of the crime inside the vehicle. Um, 77th Division believed that these individuals were also uh, possibly connected to an incident that they had at CBS um, earlier in the night. But we ended, up, we ended up arresting three individuals. Obviously, there were many more. That investigation is kind of ongoing with our detectives, so they're going to talk to them about right. um, connections and things like that. But we, we're estimating the damage to Nordstrom is maybe around 15000 and probably about $5,000 taken in merchandise in about two minutes. For, for the plans, though, about what to do about this, more presence at the stores? I mean, do they want you out there or more security? Because here's the thing, as you well know, I mean, you can have more security guards, but if there's like 80 people running through your store, what are you going to do? Yeah, no, um, you know, our plan, we, we're, in con we're in contact with our security uh, partners over in the, uh, you know, the, like the Grove and things like that. And we are going to put uh, more uniform resources in those areas, especially at night when these things are happening to, uh, you know, to act as a deterrent. Because all these smash and grabs are happening when the stores, when the stores are closed, with the exception of, I think, the things that happen in the Bay Area. What about uh, on a different issue, though, uh, Chief, what about these uh, follow home incidents uh, that are really becoming kind of scary? Yeah, that's also a trend that we've seen this year. Um, but, uh, you know, those, I believe, in, in my opinion, are a little more organized than these smash and grabs. Uh, we're finding that um, the people that are the victims of these robberies, they're taking high end jewelry. They're usually driving expensive cars. And there's probably a link to wherever these people have been before um, before the robbery and possibly, you know, individuals that might work in some of these establishments that are kind of casing the victims to see what kind of watches they're wearing, what kind of jewelry they're wearing. And then that information is passed on to another group that follows them home, because a lot of these, you know, some some people are followed home to Upland and some into the valley from West Bureau. So we're trying to draw the connections between, you know, where these people are. And again, I, I believe it's not necessarily one or two organized groups. It's one of those situations where, um, you know, the the you know the the crooks they're you know they're the crimes of opportunity, and they've developed a system to identify victims and follow them home. Blake Chow, Deputy Chief, the LAPD, Commanding Officer of the uh, West Bureau. Thanks.
I'm still thinking about the buy nothing <laughs> thing. I'm, and so for like, there's one a day. Yeah, latch well, on. I know. Well, well, like for Christmas, I'm going to tell you, right, I'm not buying you anything. Which is a great Christmas. excuse to not nothing. give gifts. I know. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not giving you anything. Why didn't so. you? I'm part of the buy nothing movement. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm not I'll, getting anything. I'm going to have a card printed up that says, "Sorry, I'm in the buy nothing movement." Which is nice because you made it. Yes. And that's. Nice. Now, when we come back, uh, why more Americans than ever before saying, no way, we're not having kids. This is KNX In Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. A little bit later on, can an artificial intelligence machine be taught to act ethically and morally? Well, they can't teach people. Are we teaching it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Who's the class instructor? (laughs) I guess we'll find out. And uh, also, instead of running out to buy stuff on Black Friday, here's a story I like, Mike. Uh, We'll look at the growing buy nothing movement. Yes, we will. Right now, though, about 44% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 49 who don't have kids said in a recent Pew poll that they don't have any plans on becoming parents. Highest percentage of Americans ever saying they'll likely remain childless. Philip Cohen, professor of sociology at the University of Maryland. Uh, Philip, thanks for being with us. So I'd imagine the reasons uh, that always get listed are either economic or, uh, you know, I don't have a partner or whatever it is. But I'm wondering if we're seeing a greater number of people just saying, you know what? I'm not interested. I don't have the desire. Yeah, well, the first uh, uh, and the first uh, response people gave was uh, just don't want to have children. And then they asked if, if, if that wasn't what you said, they asked for what your reasons were. So among the childless people it was 56 percent who said the, the reason was they just don't want to. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's pretty interesting. It's a pretty big change from the past. It's a lot more people nowadays who are willing to consider the possibility uh, and maybe even embrace the possibility that um, having children is not uh, their direction they want to take their life. But, but do we know why? Is it because uh, they have concerns uh, about economics? Or are they concerned about future or even present pandemics? Uh, wh- what's the reason for it? Well, it's always a little tricky to ask people about their plans anyway. It's, you know, it's better just to look at their behavior, you know, from a social science perspective. But um, yes, it's a combination of those practical concerns, childcare, healthcare, economics, housing, um, but also um, just what is the ideal? What is their vision for the vision for the good life? Um, for, for more people, it doesn't include, uh, um, you know, more children. It might, it might be one or two instead of, you know, two to four in the past. But I think those those practical concerns weigh very heavily. And we have seen just in the last year since the pandemic started, a pretty sharp drop in the number of children that people are actually having. So there's some evidence this is coming to fruition. Do you think there's also more acceptance of people on the outside looking in where, you know, they don't, oh, that person never had kids. How sad. Now it's just like, okay, they didn't have kids. Not a big deal. Yeah, definitely. And and though, you know, I'm sure not completely, but I think that stigma has diminished. And partly it's that um, the timing changed so much. You know, if, if people have children anywhere from, you know, age 18 to age 45, um, then if you meet a 37 year old with no children, it, it doesn't, it doesn't communicate the same, um, you know, you still have, you have to find out what's what that person's story is before you can, you know, jump to the conclusion that they're, um, that they're living a childless life. So just that diversity of experience um, has kind of helped the childlessness blend into the landscape of family choices. Uh, it's probably impossible to tell, but but is there any reason to believe that what people are responding to on these uh, surveys may not actually bear fruit? I know you mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, with the uh, 
coming off of the pandemic that we're seeing some of this developing already. But is there any reason to believe that people are saying, oh, we don't really want to have kids, but in a year or two, there are going to be lots of people having kids? Surprise. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's I think that's very reasonable. And so we we study, you know, intentions like this because they tell us something, but we would never use this to literally predict how many people will have children. And that's because you know, if if between now and next year you get a good job, get a good partner, get a good house, and and um, you know, and, and f- turns out you're pretty happy, um, that may be you know that that's enough to change people's mind. And there's no there's no shame in that for people changing their mind. But I think um, the shift in this, you know, the Pew research people did this three years ago, and they got a you know a, a lower number of people not planning to have children. So the fact that that number is trending upwards is um, is an indication that it may be um, uh, pushing reality that direction. Philip Cohen, professor of sociology at the University of Maryland, was talking to my friend uh, Sunday. He has no plans, does not want kids. And he said, you know, people ask me, well, who's going to take care of you when you're old? Mm. And he said, all of the money that I keep by not having kids. (laughs) Smart guy. (laughs) Smart guy. Uh, When we come back, we're going to talk about Black Friday deals, uh, if the stores are going to have stuff in stock. Also about, yes, the the (laughs) we're not going to buy anything movement. That's my favorite movement. signed up. Yeah. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. All right, so the buying stuff now, and then we'll get to the not buying stuff later. But here's the usual Black Friday question, right? What are the best deals, and then what stores are going to be open either late or early, and where do I line up? Um, But the mystery this year might be, are they actually going to have the stuff that I want to go and buy? See, I don't have that problem because I'm not buying anything. But that's because the world's COVID-induced supply chain headaches have run smack into the holiday shopping season. With us now is Bob Fibbs, who's a small a small business consultant. Does that mean you, you consult for small business? Well, you're not small, right? You're just a regular-sized person. Dude, I'm the retail doctor. <laughs> you should know this. You should know this. I'm just saying. I know, Help me out here. Okay, so, so retail doc. Uh, Thank you. T- tell me whether or not uh, there is going to be a problem as people go to the stores getting the things they want to or think they need to buy. They're going to be just fine. And if they don't spend 100 bucks in your store, they're going to spend it in somebody else's. We are in for a once-in-a-generation holiday bonanza, my friends. Okay, so where do all these stories come from that the stores aren't going to have everything? We, we know that there's supply chain issues, but you're saying they've got enough stuff for us to go and get? Hey, it's like 10% is in trouble. Most of the manufacturers I talk to, they have already uh, been able to find that they're inventories are getting back in shape and in fact if you notice target and walmart went down yesterday because they might have too much stuff in stock are there uh, specific items though that might be a little bit difficult because it does seem like every year there's something some years it's it's uh, big screen tvs other years it's different audio components is there anything this year that might be a little bit more tricky the challenge is it's not being driven by demand as much as by spot shortages. So, yes, certain types of toys, uh, there's trouble. Certainly, we've heard about electronics because of chips uh, and things like that. But uh, as far as a, it's the one thing that everybody is looking for that no one has, we're not seeing that. No Red Ryder rifle sets. You'll <laughs> shoot your eye out, kid. Um, <laughs> The early pre-Black Friday sales have always been a thing the last few years, but I feel like I've seen plenty more of them this year because that word got out, you know, shop early, shop early, there's a problem. Um, Do you think a lot of people have already been there, done that? Like, I'm almost done with 
Christmas shopping, and this is the earliest that I've ever been done. Yeah, well, we don't like people like you. We like to wait for the last minute. <laughs> light up in the store, wait Christmas Eve. <laughs> I'm just saying. But uh, no, I mean, we've heard that something like, you know, 25 or 30% of people started in June. I think the thing that, excuse me, in July, the thing that I think is so interesting is how many people put up holiday decorations early this year. People want to get out. They want to forget the last, you know, 18, 20 months. And that idea of lights and events and all of that is drawing people out in droves. I don't know if you guys have noticed the South Coast Plaza or some of the other centers around you, but um, we've noticed since August how people are out there and not just out there, there was shopping bags. The, uh, the people who are uh, shopping, are they in, I mean, you're talking about people getting Christmas decorations up early. And is there any indication that people are willing to spend more this year than before because maybe they saved by not buying anything last year? Well, we've heard that the there's something like $5 trillion of pent-up demand and the consumer is just now starting to put their foot down on the gas. Whether that's true or not, let's be, also be honest, with inflation, everybody's going to look good in January because prices <laughs> have simply ri risen, right? So uh, there's a certain side of... Um, you know, painting the lily here, but the demand is definitely up and we are seeing that across the board. Are stores still like discouraging the lineup Black Friday big crowd thing? Because that didn't happen so much last year and it was a lot of curbside pickup, which sometimes is it just will, a heck of a lot it easier. Will never, I apologize, a little delay here in our conversation. Um, uh, that will never happen again. Uh, we all remember the infamous stories. Well, I'm of a certain age, you know, I'm in my early 60s, where we would hear about a big box retailer with people being trampled or all sorts of awful things. In this day and age with viral videos, no one's going to chance that. So that idea of there are five TVs that are, you know, $50 that are worth a thousand, <laughs> I don't think you'll ever see that uh, again. So Mike, you were, you were telling me during the commercial work, you've already bought stuff for Christmas, Oh right? yeah, I'm so, almost done, and then you didn't like people like me. Yeah, I mean, and, so- And so, Charles is the Grinch. We yeah, heard that no, in my yeah I'm, not, I'm, not buying, I'm not buying anything. I, yeah. I mean, so, so which one, Bob, uh, Mike or me, is really the norm now? Watch oh, what you say. You're abnormal. Is that what you want me to say, Charles? You got it. Okay. There you have it. It's, a, it's official. From the expert. The doctor, no less. Right yes. from the doc. From the retail doctor, uh, Bob Fibs. Bob, thanks for talking to us. It's official now. Uh, and when we come back, yes, finally, we talk about the buy nothing movement. Buy nothing. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Well, as Black Friday approaches, a lot of shoppers feeling the need to buy everything, new clothes, electronics, maybe a major appliance. But one movement is encouraging people to do the opposite, buy nothing. And you'd like to sign up for this. I have my card. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's ready to go. I'm uh, ready to go. The Buy Nothing Project International Network, people creating these like gift economies in their neighborhoods. Wendy Miller is with us, an avid Buy Nothing participant, co-host of the network's new podcast, launching this Black Friday. Wendy, thanks for being here. So explain uh, to my co-host here what he is getting into when he wants to be a part of your network. Yes. <laughs> thanks for having me on. So basically, there's so much stuff out there. and We live in this sort of scarcity model. But the fact is your neighbors might have things that you need and you probably have a lot of stuff that you could share with other people. Like 
I have 65 bowls in my kitchen. I don't know why, it's just a little bit of a problem. And this is a great opportunity to share with your neighbors, get to know them and you know, prevent a lot of the waste that's happening and really also just create this gift economy where you get to know, know each other and, and share what you have. And that's really what Buy Nothing is all about. So basically uh, offload all the stuff you don't want to your neighbors, is that it? <laughs> well, you know, you're not exactly incorrect with me because I am a serial getter ridder of things. And so I am constantly walking through my house wondering what I can get rid of. So it's great for me because I will post up there, you know, hey, uh, a friend, I lost 50 pounds last year. So I might say, hey, I've got a lot of clothes. Would anybody like this? Instead of going to, you know, Goodwill or something, Salvation Army, you can actually give it to people in your neighborhood. And then you know who's getting your stuff. You make connections. Maybe somebody has a baby and they need things. And it's just a great way to share what you have and keep things out of the landfill. Because, I mean, I don't know what you guys, people now buy stuff from Amazon and you want to return it. And they're like, ah, just keep it. Like, there's just so much stuff yeah. out there that people don't even know what to do with it anymore. And we, had, we all have enough to share. Is this like bartering? Or trading or is it literally just hey i want to get rid of this i don't need it anymore take it and then someday down the line if it's not even the same person it's just somebody else posts i've got this and you want that then you take it you don't have to give anything to them well that's it yeah there's no bartering this is not hey listen if anybody wants all of my uh looney tunes bowls i'd like to give them to them if they have some laundry baskets it's not like that at all <laughs> it's basically just sharing what you have and people post on the app you know looking for a crib my nephew's coming to town and we don't have a crib does anyone have one i could borrow or have and people will just you know say yeah come and get it and that's the best part it's like you go to someone's house you pick it up easy peasy lemon squeezy it's the greatest thing it's like it's like the single greatest shopping opportunity and it doesn't cost you a penny which is amazing but wendy isn't it like potentially awkward like you said you have what 65 bowls so you give one or two or whatever <laughs> to a neighbor then you're invited over to their house for dinner and you sit at the table and go wait a minute that's my bowl well no if i got rid of something i certainly wouldn't be looking at it and saying hey that's my yeah bowl. but you're going to remember it you're going to remember it it's you're going to go that's my bowl no, no, trust me. I, I want to get rid of stuff. So take my bowls, please. I don't want them. And <laughs> I'm happy to share with people because I have too much stuff in my house. Come on. You must have like that closet that is just filled with junk that you're not even touching. And imagine if somebody just, you know, put posts on the app. Hey, I need a tennis racket. Does anybody have one? My kid wants to take tennis lessons. You're like, oh my God, I have four tennis rackets in my garage. I haven't even touched for 10 years. Does all the junk usually move? Because I think some people think, you know what, I have the junk. I'm going to get rid of it someday, but nobody else wants this junk. Well, first of all, it's not all junk. You know, the podcast that I host with uh, Jill Hotchkiss, people have given away diamond rings and silver plate. Wait, 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 wait. They gave away a dime. Why would anyone give away a diamond ring? So there was this woman. They had 65 in, of them. No, no. There was this woman who was in a relationship. Things went a little south and she put her engagement ring under a pile of junk in the closet and didn't really think about it. And then one day she thought, you know, I need to, I need to get this out of my life. I need to get these objects out of my life because objects have energy, right? And it's like, you've got this thing, this fail in your closet, this diamond ring. And it just so happened a woman on the other side of Tulsa where she lived always wanted a diamond ring. But she came from, you know, very basic means, and there was no way she could ever have a diamond ring. These two women got together, 
and the woman whose relationship fell apart gave the other woman a diamond ring. It's one of well, the stories on our show. Well, Wendy, I don't want any of your bowls, but if you have a diamond, you know, <laughs> send around. Yeah, I'll know. gladly send it over. You know. But everybody thinks their stuff is worth stuff, right? They, they, like this is your crap, and this is my good stuff. So everybody thinks their <laughs> stuff is worth a lot. Um, I definitely think I have some good stuff, and. Listen, there was a whole war in our group because someone wanted to give away a half-eaten pie and a shoebox. And it turned into this whole thing. I gave away half of a cake the other day because we just didn't want it. And there's someone out there who wanted the cake. So it, there's always, not always. Uh, half, a cake. Want half a cake. How far does it, like, what's your radius? Is it like just your neighborhood? Or, or you mentioned that the ring went far, but like in no, practice, no, how does it, far. oh, the ring's not the, far. The, no, no, it was in, in, the, in the same little area outside of Tulsa. And so it's all done in these little neighborhoods, these little communities. And so, uh, you know, I live in Sherman Oaks and there are so many people in the Sherman Oaks group that they actually had to split it up. <laughs> so there are tons of people all over the world. There's 4.3 yeah, million people using this. Yeah, Mike's asking the question because he wants the other half of that cake that you have. <laughs> I'm actually curious about the Looney Tunes bowls. Oh, Is that, you actually have Looney Tunes bowls. I mean, yeah, you know, I have a lot of bowls. It's a problem, but I'm working on it. I'm giving them away. <laughs> so, so if I join the uh, the Buy Nothing uh, project, is there like a really uh, cool card that I get? <laughs> no, uh, uh -huh. there's no card. There's no T-shirt. There's no secret handshake. But you do get an opportunity to get rid of stuff. And the best part is people come and pick it up from you. So you don't have to load it all up and go to the, you know, go to the thrift shop. People come and pick it up right from your front porch. You don't even have to see them. And, and that was so great about COVID is that, you know, you, you didn't want to in, interact with people. So you could put things out right on your, you know, right on your porch. And there was this contactless pickup. They would grab it, move on. And it was perfect. So, yeah, I was going to say, did this really explode over the last couple of years? It, it, if it predated COVID, did it really get going during COVID? Because I imagine someone in the group needed toilet paper, right? <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of that. And that's when I found it because I was working on a TV show and it got canceled because of COVID. And I was spending a lot of time online and just trying, trying to figure out, you know, how I can make ends meet. And maybe I needed this thing or that thing. And I just went on this buy nothing deal and all of a sudden, I needed a shower curtain rod. Someone had one, and boom, I went and I picked it up. It was that easy. Well, Wendy, look around your house. If you do find a stray diamond, <laughs> you know where to send it. <laughs> uh, you guys are kind of hopped up on the diamonds. It's very he interesting. Likes well, I like that better than the bowl, to be quite honest. <laughs> I'll take the bowls. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. So is it just the app? Is it a website for people who are listening right now? And they're like, you know what? I've got some stuff. Yeah, it's a, it, there's an app and you can also, it's also on Facebook. So there are lots of hyper local groups all over the place. You go on and you can post whether you're looking for something. Maybe, you know, you had an Eames chair when you were a kid and, you know, it, it got lost in a fire and you've always wanted one. You say, hey, does anyone have an extra, this kind of chair? Or does anyone have any cardboard boxes? And you just post it up there. Or you could say gifting Looney Tunes bowls or, you know, cashmere sweaters or uh, 27 diamond rings. Maybe, you're, you know, Zsa, Zsa Gabor is in your group, whatever. And, and you <laughs> it know, happens. it's a great way to make connections with people. And for me, get rid of your stuff because that's all I ever want to do. All right. Wendy Miller, avid Buy Nothing participant, co-host of the network's new podcast, which launches on Black Friday. Wendy, thanks. You want the bowls? Yeah, I'll take the bowls. Tweety Bird and Yosemite Sam on him, all that stuff. I want the diamonds. Well, yeah, if anybody's got one, send it our way. Uh, more in-depth to come. Another half an hour is on the way.
We're back on KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. If you've seen the movie Armageddon before, this plot line will sound familiar. Huge asteroid on a collision course with Earth with the potential to wipe out most of humanity, but of course not the stars of the movie. In the movie, a group of heroic astronauts rocket up to the offending asteroid, blow it up with a nuclear weapon. In real life, though, the solution to a killer asteroid might be somewhat more nuanced. Tonight at Vandenberg's SpaceX uh, rocket is going to blast off on an experimental mission to nudge a potentially killer asteroid out of the way of Earth. Christina Thomas, planetary astronomer at Northern Arizona University, team leader of DART's double asteroid redirection test, observations working group. Christina, thanks for being here. So uh, one of the key words in there would be redirect, right? That's what we're trying to do here? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're trying to redirect or understand how we would redirect uh, an object should we actually have to do that in the future. Now, to be clear, this particular object doesn't pose any threat, right? Correct. Uh, the target of the DART mission is actually a binary object. So there's two objects. We are targeting specifically the small moonlet called Dimorphos uh, so that we are changing the orbit of that moon around the primary asteroid and not at all changing the orbit of both of them around the sun which is what would impact um, how it would orbit and uh, come towards the Earth. How do we hope to change its movement? So essentially, this is a test of what we call a kinetic impactor. So we're taking the spacecraft itself and smashing it straight into uh, the small moon, so Dimorphos, which is about 500 feet across. Uh, and so by doing that, we're going to change uh, the relative speed uh, that that moon orbits around the larger body, uh, which will change the orbital period, which is something that we can observe from telescopes on the ground here on Earth. How long is it going to take to reach the object? And is this something that, that people can see with the naked eye from Earth? Uh, so uh, we are, our launch window opens tonight, so we're hoping to, to launch tonight. Um, and if we do that, then the impact would be in late September of 2022. So it's really not a very long trip uh, to this specific asteroid. Um, and when we impact, it's actually going to be relatively faint because, again, the moon that we're impacting is fairly small. And so while we're close uh, to the object in terms of the standards of space, it's actually going to be really faint. So we're hoping to be able to catch images from some of the larger telescopes here on the ground and also Hubble Space Telescope. Um, but we don't actually know that it will be a big enough impact for most people to see here on the planet. Theoretically, it works, which is why we're going through the trouble of doing this. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, everything that we have studied suggests that we are going to hit our target exactly where we're going to uh, hit it. And we're going to change the orbit uh, by at least 10 minutes. Uh, right now, the orbit of the moon around uh, the, the bigger one, so the orbit of Dimorphos around Didymos, is about 11 hours and 55 minutes. And so 10 minutes is a relatively large fraction of that, uh, which is easy for us to observe from the ground. So as we mentioned, though, you know, in the movies, they when they do this sort of thing, they use a nuclear weapon, I suppose, because it looks better on camera. Uh, there's no <laughs> nuclear weapon involved in this, right? No, no, it's just one thing impacting into the other. So a kinetic, kinetic impact. You know, something much larger like the nuclear weapons that we see in the movies would actually probably uh, destroy an object, which if it was on the course towards the planet, would create many other particles that would uh, pose a threat to the planet. So it's, so more, it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of like cars on the 405. They just bump into each other. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. <laughs> would this still work if we had a bigger rock without the moon and we slammed something into it? Because, you know, what if our odds are bad and we get that instead of this? 
Right, right. So if you have a, um, a bigger rock, then you might need a bigger impactor. Or the other thing is you need more time before the threat to Earth. And so if you have, you know, 100 years, for example, then you really don't need a large impact to change the orbit enough so that it would miss the planet. Um, but if you have a shorter lead time, then you, do, you need to come up with another way to address that. And so one of the interesting things about this specific test is that we're going to start to get an idea of how these things scale, right? We've never done this before. So everything that we learn is brand new. So is there, though, something that we know of that is out there that if this test fails, we're going to go, oh, no. Actually, uh, fortunately, no. Um, all of the objects that would be large enough to get all the way through the atmosphere and even touch the ground um, that we know of and have discovered, they pose no threat to the planet Earth for at least the next century. Oh, good. I'll be dead anyways. Christina Thomas, planetary <laughs> astronomer, Northern Arizona University, uh, with DART, the double asteroid redirection test. Uh, Christina, thanks. So does that thought make you feel happy? I mean, I don't want to be sitting here waiting for the rock to fall on me. No. So. so it's better that you're not None here. Not of my concern, unless okay. something creeps up from <laughs> the other side. If I'm here in 100 years, I'm still not buying anything. <laughs> <laughs> when we come back in an artificial intelligence system, be taught to act in an ethical and moral way. We'll find out. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So human beings routinely struggle with ethics, morality. So as we work on artificial intelligence systems, maybe it's no surprise that they're going to struggle too, right? Because who's building the machine? It's us. So they've actually tried to do this as a team of researchers who wanted to try to teach an AI system to act ethically or at least, you know, give its opinions on stuff. And um, we've got some results. Yeah, the system they created is called Delphi, and you can put it through the paces yourself. It's available on the web right now, and you can try it out. You can ask Delphi questions like, uh, should I run the uh, blender at 3 a.m. in the morning when my family is uh, sleeping? I I put one in just now. I said, can I tell the boss I'm sick but go to the movies? (laughs) And it 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 says, it's not okay. (laughs) Well... Now so, he knows. But suppose it's a good movie. Yi Jun Choi is, <laughs> a prof- a <laughs> is a professor of computer science and engineering at the University of Washington and in the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. And she created the Delphi Artificial Intelligence System. Thanks for being with us. Uh, sure. So uh, it didn't give me the answer I was hoping for, which I was hoping it would say, yeah, go ahead, go to the movie. But what's the, what's the, uh, the purpose of this particular project? Tell us. Well, AI is already... Um inside um, a lot of what we use today, like search engines, the social media, content recommendations, and even home devices all have AI inside. And currently, uh, these systems are not particularly taught with the social norms, ethical norms that we abide by when we interact with humans. And as AI becomes a more integral part of human lives, um, we thought it's important to research toward that. So how did you go about building it? What was kind of fed in to to try and get at the answers that now Delphi is giving? Yeah, so it's basically learning through examples, lots of examples. Um, It's taught with 1.7 million examples of what people might uh, judge, uh, like lay people uh, in the wild might say, given a variety of ethically thorny situations. 
uh, focusing primarily on, you know, everyday situations like running Blender at 3 a.m. Or calling in sick and going to the movies. <laughs> That's my favorite one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, was it more difficult to teach uh, computers uh, ethics and morality than perhaps you may have thought going into this? Um, I wasn't surprised that it's hard because anything in AI is quite hard. At least that's what researchers tend to think. I'd rather say uh, as a first shot approach, it was more promising than expected. However, uh, the careful thing to consider here is that when something starts working, making it really work and being it, uh, making it robust is still a major research question in the way how self-driving car has been coming, but it's still not coming and it might take many more years to come. So, Right. So we're still at like the very, very basic levels of this because, you know, it still gets confused or gives strange answers or it's nowhere near, you know, thinking it all the way through, if it's even thinking, you know, like we would when you get into this whole 30 minute discussion about ethics or, or morality of, of whatever the subject could be. Yeah, totally. It's a very complex thing that we have as humans, this moral and ethical norms. And then there's the cultural norms, which are something to follow just because. And then there's this diverse, different cultures. And so it's, uh, it's a complicated thing. But and yet there's something about, you know, the basic um, uh, moral norms that most people do agree, for example, killing a human being is not a good thing to do. Maybe there's an exception. But you cannot do that just because you feel like it, people will agree with it. So it's interesting that there's this spectrum of cases when most people will agree, and then there are cases when people may not agree. Have you been surprised by the kinds of questions, because we mentioned up top that, that you can, anyone can go uh, online and, and pose a question. I just did, as I mentioned. Uh, are you surprised by any of the questions that people have been posing to Delphi? Oh, yeah, we were very surprised by um, the volume and the creativity of the questions that people entered into our system. Um, we, uh, in our previous research on racism, sexism, or uh, toxicity of neural language models or common sense models, we always had this web demo available, but usually people don't really play with it. Whereas in this particular case, uh, we have received more than 3 million uh, user queries, and they're very good. They're very adversarial. Um, it really pushes the limit of what AI can and cannot do. Did you have to give it so many prompts and you know feed in so much data just to get around the idea of like what we mentioned at the top? It's going to have whatever morals if as whoever is programming it has. Because I seem to remember a story. I don't know. It was floating around a couple of years back and there was this bot and it was like in some system and they let it out for a minute hmm. and it could learn from the humans. And it looked at all these these things that we were saying and it took it like not a long time to become super rude and racist and sexist. Hmm. And it was giving people all sorts of terrible responses. And it was like, wow, this is a great reflection on humanity. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. At the end of the day, the reason why off-the-shelf neural models do have all this racism and sexism is because they're trained on a lot of raw data on the internet, which reflect what humans said, which is sad, but true. Are, are there questions that, by design or otherwise, that Delphi can't or won't answer? Um, currently, uh, well, uh, Delphi doesn't really understand anything. Thing for sure. So 
currently um, the demo will hedge a little bit if it has low confidence in answering and oftentimes if you give convoluted sentences uh, then it might not especially if you present a weird situation where there are two things at odds at the same time and balancing which is more important uh, it may not uh, it, it might um, not answer and then currently um, just inappropriate content um, it, it's going to just hedge on that as well and no like follow-ups or anything like charles can't ask well why not or here's here's why i want to go to the movies <laughs> or suppose it's a good movie yeah. <laughs> yeah, suppose it's a good movie yeah. Yeah. no um the customization i think it's a very interesting research direction especially customization through interactions um but um that would be a future research direction so you mentioned that this maybe will paint the picture for, for everybody in a really easy way. You mentioned, you know, don't kill people, right? So if you ask it, can I kill someone? They'll say, no, but can you kill someone to save someone else? What does it say? Or can you kill someone to save 100 people? What does it say? Where, where does it draw the line? Yeah, um, it has a bit of um, number uh, num number related sense. So uh, the original version actually uh, did weigh in you know whether uh, killing a person can save 100 people maybe it will go ahead and do that but uh, currently it's not going to endorse crime um, as much as it used to it's because probably we, as much as it used to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because we um within two weeks we updated the demo based on um, some of the adversarial examples that people put in and we realized that a lot of these adversarial examples are trying to endorse either crime or genocide or um, a lot of situations that might arise in a TV show, basically, but not in real life. Uh, hopefully, most of um, people's real life situations don't involve those things. But but yeah. it, but, but I'm I'm interested. In it, it used to endorse crime. So what happened? Did did like you guys go? No, no, they no. They told it to stop. Yeah, st stop. <laughs> stop saying that, Delphi. Um, not uh, only through some examples that uh, we taught it. So the truth is this, the data that it was originally trained on had relatively more positive bias because even though we tried to crawl, harvest ethically thorny situations from places like Reddit, which is a place where people discuss a lot of um, strange situations, there people still do not talk about killing 10 people to save or create jobs, for example. You know, this is not the usual conversation people do have. So then uh, we did a little bit more annotation on those cases and the model became more um, uh, guarded against uh, racism or crimes and such. Yi Jin Choi, professor of computer science, engineering, University of Washington, created the Delphi AI system. Thanks for talking to us. That's in depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow. So I can't use that excuse now. Mm -mm. Yeah. Nope. He'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> Not at the movies.